Well, in our household, at the Lagrone house, we are an apple family. Uh, depending on what generation you come from, you picture different things when I said that. If you are from a certain generation, you've pictured lots of red, round fruit. That is an apple to you. Uh, like maybe we're in family that just likes to get our fruits and vegetables in, lots of cuisine with apples in it, apple turnovers, apple pie. But if you are from what I would say is the majority generation in this room, you pictured something more like this when I said apple. Um, our kids, in fact, are very familiar with the apple on the back of that product, so much so that when my daughter Kate decided to create her own laptop, she actually, without any prompting, drew an apple on the back of it. Uh, when it was time to learn our letters in our house, we had no trouble with the letter I. We were familiar with iMacs and iPhones and iPads and iPods, and we love our Apple products at our house. We just do. Except for the day when we don't love them anymore. Do you know what that day is? What day do you stop loving your product? It's, it's the day when a man in a black turtleneck <laughs> stands on stage, or actually now one of his successors, before tens of thousands of adoring fans gathered around the internet and tells us why our eye products, the ones that we have in our hands, are no longer good enough. We may have thought that they were great, but according to him or them, they're garbage now, really. He convinces us of this easily. We buy into his words, and these are his own products. So how do you convince us that this, what we once adored, is now garbage? Well, you show us a new one. You provide us an upgrade. It's shiny. It's new. It does all the new things. It comes in new colors. It tracks our movement, our sleep, our posture, our morning run. It's small enough to fit on our wrists now. It goes with us everywhere. And suddenly when we look down at the devices already in our hand or our lap, the device that was just fine yesterday now causes a sigh of disappointment. That, that purchase that we were assured, even insured, would last for years has outlasted our interest. And the one in the black turtleneck tells us that this device, the one only a few months ago he held up as a golden calf, well, this one's okay. But the new one, man, wouldn't you love to have the new one? Because it has just one more thing. And with that one more thing, everything already in our hand, perfectly good though it may be, seems to crumble and fade. And we're convinced that if we were just true believers, we would run out and get that one more thing. We would line up around city blocks with thousands of other people waiting in line to be the first to get one more thing, to get what he's selling. And what he's selling is a form of hope. Now, Apple didn't, didn't invent this marketing technique uh, to convince us that what we have is inadequate in order to convince us to get the next big thing. This is a common technique to cause a feeling of inadequacy or disappointment in our own possessions, really in our own identity. Uh, before there were telecasts, before 
um, anything like they use, we, we were convinced by commercials, by catalogs. Maybe you're not partial to electronics, but if you've ever bought new clothes or a new car or a new gadget before the old one wore out, you may have been infected by the idea of just one more thing that will transform your existence in every way. Marketing has always been great at making us feel just a little bit inadequate, and the season of Super Bowl commercials will tell you that. By proclaiming there is just one more thing that you do not yet have, you are somehow incomplete. But you know what happens when you get it? There is always one more thing again. Marketing may have perfected this one more thing feeling, but they didn't even invent it. Actually, it goes, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. I mean, walking with God, the creator and Lord of all creation, is great and all, but wouldn't you give it up for just one more thing? I mean, the knowledge of good and evil to be godlike yourself, maybe it's significance that the source of this upgrade was also an apple. Before I get dozens of emails this afternoon, I'm very aware that Genesis just says fruit, but just allow me a little, <laughs> let a preacher live a little, okay? You can find, you can find the lure of one more thing peppered throughout the stories of scripture. What's the one more thing that you desire to make you complete? Maybe, maybe a golden calf? Maybe having a king like all the other nations, maybe asking to sit at the right or left hand of Jesus in his kingdom, or anything, anything that convinces that the people of faith, that it will make them the in crowd instead of the down and out. There is the lure of one more thing all over scripture. But no one really perfected it like the Colossians. One more thing is all over the letter to the Colossians. And, and this young church, they had everything going for them. Paul all but gushes about them in the greeting of his letter to the church. Here's just, just a few things he uses to describe them. They have a thriving faith in Jesus Christ. They have a, a deep understanding of their hope laid up in heaven. They have an incredible love birthed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And their hope in the word has been bearing fruit in their community. In short, this is the church that we would love to pastor, love to attend, love to be part of. But the Colossians, they also have one more thing in their hearts. A desire for something more that just, that just might complete their faith. And it wasn't anything that they came up with on their own. In their community, they were, they were surrounded by others trying to convince them that this one more thing was out there. And these others, this philosophy, this doctrine, this cult, I would say, is hounding them, pushing them, influencing to upgrade, not their devices, to upgrade their faith. The gospel, that, it was great. These other Sam and the gospel's fine, but couldn't you do better? Surely you need one more thing to make it fresh again. Anybody ever get bored with the gospel? Gospel 3G will be so much better. Gospel 4.0, gospel 10 with an X. <laughs> this, this is the latest. It's the improved version. In this version, all you need is to do one more thing. 
or don't. Don't do this one more thing. And then, then you'll realize the fullness of faith. You'll be really connected to God then. And the good news is you don't even have to depend on God for it. Just, just do it yourself. I mean, here are some of the ways the local tempters were trying to get the Colossians to feel inadequate unless they did one more thing from God, for God. Do you know what you need? They were saying, you need just one more thing, Colossians. You need to eat and drink in just the right way, the way that we prescribe. You need to observe all the right festivals and Sabbaths. Make sure you celebrate in all the right ways. Be sure to abstain from specific things with all the right practices. This upgrade is going to be awesome. In fact, if you, if you fast enough, if you deny yourself in all the right ways, you might even have visions in your hunger. And you've had, you've had ordinary worship before. It's fine. Worship, I mean, you got a little bored with that too. Admit it. But if you add just one more thing to your worship, they're saying, maybe you could take worship up a notch. And then it would be like you were worshiping right there in heaven with the angels. But you need to follow our new rule. You've got to do it our way. One more thing is necessary for this new upgrade. Good thing this was just an ancient problem. I mean, this is a historical book. Contemporary significance, I mean, nobody messes with worship today, do they? <laughs> nobody says that you need to upgrade any worship service at your church, spice it up a little bit, make it heavenly in some way. Worship is great, they said, but if you, if you would just add one more thing, wouldn't it be so much better? For those tempting the Colossians, it was always one more thing before they could be acceptable to God. Salvation by faith alone was great. But couldn't you do better? I'll confess that I found the one more thing message infecting my life a few years ago. Um, it happened when I showed up to a doctor's appointment and found out that I was going to have to wait for about 45 minutes and I needed to find something to do. So I, I went down to my car to see if there was anything in my car that I could um, do while I waited. And this will tell you that it was, it was a few years before smartphones were popular because nobody ever wonders what to do with 45 minutes anymore. So I headed down to my car and found that there was a Bible in my car. And so I brought it inside and here was my thought. I thought, great, I will take this time to spend time with the Lord. I will, as we say in Christian ease, do my devotionals. And then I sat down, Bible in lap, and I realized that I couldn't. I couldn't spend time with the Lord. It wasn't possible. Now, why was that? First of all, I didn't have my devotional book with me. I mean, how do you connect with God without someone else's writings? Those inspired and inspiring words that made God's words seem real and relevant to me. Um, this was a great book. It only had just a touch of scripture every day, not so much to get you bored, nothing out of Leviticus. And writings of someone else telling you what they gleaned from scripture. I couldn't spend time with God because I didn't have my journal with me. And, and how can you be with the Lord without writing down your own thoughts? Because let's admit it, some inspiration for some future sermon might hit during those devotionals. You've got to record it. I didn't have my journal. And to make matters worse, I actually had 
the wrong Bible. No, it, it was a Christian Bible. But the Bible I had stashed in my car wasn't the one I was used to using. It wasn't my devotional Bible, right? Um, the one where a third of every page was scripture and two-thirds were someone else's notes or writings about scripture. And their writings were so inspiring that their, their name goes right on the cover, right under Bible, like the Jonathan Powers devotional Bible. I don't... <laughs> This is when you'll know you've arrived. <laughs> God is no longer your co-pilot. He is your co-author. So I couldn't do it. I couldn't do my devotionals. I could not be in the eternal presence of Christ. Because all I had with me was the plain old Bible, and it wasn't enough. Now you get it. I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but I have to tell you that this actually happened to me. I sat in a waiting room with a Bible in my lap, the inspired word of God, alive and active, and I honestly felt that it wasn't enough because I had left all the upgrades at home. Somehow, as I sat there waiting with an unopened Bible in my lap, God got to me. He told me how ridiculous this whole thing was, how ridiculous I was being. I had gotten so dependent on the resources that helped me study God's word that I had forgotten how to engage with the source itself. And it, it seems silly to say that we would put anything before our need for God, that we would need anything besides God himself to come to him. But how many times have we heard this communicated in our churches? You know what would make us really great as a church? What we need are this, this new style of small groups. Or maybe this, this great leadership training. Or what if we spiced up our worship service just a little bit? None of those are bad things. Small groups, leadership training, worship is always a good thing. But then Sabbaths aren't bad things either. Someone was tempting the Colossians with them. It's the order in which things come that matters so much. There's God's grace, and then there's our response of faithfulness. And, and the order of those things is not interchangeable. It's not some chicken and egg situation where maybe our faithfulness comes before God's grace. This may seem obvious, but not so obvious that we don't have to be reminded again and again. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. We can do all the right things. Devotional time, prayer and study time, these are good things. Small groups, leadership training, worship, but it's in us, isn't it? This, this temptation to believe that we're somehow adding to the gospel with our one more thing. Prone to wander, we sang it, but I'm not, I'm not sure we're so prone to reject God as we are to accessorize him. To just think we could, we could hang one more thing even better on the grace of God. It occurred to me thinking about this that if the story of the prodigal son were shown as a movie, what a great movie that would be, right? That if somebody just watched a clip, if they just watched the clip of the son returning home, 
rehearsing his speech over and over again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Rehearsing his speech again and again. If you just started the clip there, and then you encountered him approaching home and the father responding with grace, you might think the speech did it. You might think that the speech earned his place in the home. But we have to zoom out into the larger story. And if we zoomed out, if we watched more of the movie, we would see a bigger picture of the father's actions of running toward the son before he ever heard a word. The big picture of the father loving a wayward son and waiting on him before he was ever sure that he would come home. The biggest picture of all of a father raising and loving a son from his earliest days as a baby never knowing if that son would respond in love at all, but knowing that nothing would ever merit a father's love. Just being a son was all that was needed. So if you get to the part where the son makes the speech, you'll notice that the father doesn't even let him finish. He never even lets him say, let me be your servant. The father won't hear of it. Nothing in our works could earn us a place in the house. See, the, the worth of a servant is their work. But the worth of a son, of a child, is in the relationship with the father. That's all that's needed. First, God's grace. Then our response. First, God's grace. Always. None of us can, can earn this thing. No matter how many one more things we do. C.S. Lewis says it this way in The Great Divorce. Everything is here for the asking, but nothing can be bought. There's something about the way we tell people in ministry what they need to do to get really close to God that we have to be very careful about because Christ has done all that is necessary. It's our response that we need to proclaim. But this desire, this one more thing, temptation, it's in the Colossians and it's in us. The thought that we might just do something that would make God love us a little bit more. And, and here's the secret. This, this deep desire to please God, which is in fact a good thing, is really a desire to control. To be the one who does the thing. That determines our outcome, our destiny, our path. Sometimes even a sense of Christian guilt. That sense that we're not doing enough not praying enough, not reading enough, not being enough. Even that sense of self-abasement, Colossians calls it, is a desire to control. Because it puts the one more thing in our court. If I just did one more thing, I would be enough. So how, how do we break this power over us? How do we break out of the one more thing temptation? In the Colossians case, it came in the form of a letter from the Apostle Paul, and Paul knew all about one more thing. He was a Jew among the Jews. He had been the king of following the law to the letter. Anything that meant climbing that ladder that would bring him one rung closer to God, and he knew, he knew that it was a deadly poison. So he sent warning. He sent warning. This is not about 
festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. It's not about self-denial and visions. It's not about worship so great you think you're standing with the angels. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do. It's actually not about you at all. Anything that puts you at the center of your relationship with God puts you in control. And as much as we hate to admit it, we're not. The good news of Colossians, the good news for us, is that God has done everything necessary and sufficient for us to be close to him. Everything that is needed, Christ has done. And then we respond. Sometimes when I'm studying scripture, looking for some, you know, fine detail that's going to be great epiphany, I miss the obvious. And as I looked at this passage, the obvious of Colossians kind of smacked me in the face, and it's this. It's who Paul is writing the letter to. He's writing it to the Colossian church. See how great my detailed observation is? I I can read the name of the letter. That's all it took. Paul is writing this to the Christians, to the church, to the ones who are under attack from the false philosophy, the cult, whatever you want to call it, tempting the young church to add on to the gospel. He's writing it to empower them, and that must mean that power lies in their hands to make this decision. I mean, he, he could have written to the tempters, to the the false cult of visions and angels and new moons and festivals. Paul could have written a cease and desist letter to those who were trying to turn the church the wrong direction. Dear sirs and madams, please stop mischaracterizing the faith and tempting the young church or face legal action. But he didn't write to them. He wrote to the young Christians in the church because It was within them to resist, to shift their focus from their own control to the sufficiency of Christ, to look continually at what God has done, which is worship, and away from what they could do. And and he says, don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let anyone disqualify you, and that includes you. No one can condemn you unless you've already condemned yourself. No one can disqualify you unless you allow them to do so. My mom used to say these little things I would ignore, and it was only years later that I would find out how meaningful they were. But one of those things that you only realize in adulthood when you have kids of your own is is so true that she used to say was this, no one can make you feel bad about yourself without your permission. I feel like that's what Paul is saying to the Colossians, no no one can take control of your heart and mind unless you give it to them. It's up to you to decide, is Christ enough? Or will you try one more thing? So let me ask you, Asbury Seminary, at the beginning of a new year, the beginning of a new spring semester, who has control over your heart and mind? Who will make this decision for you? Let no one take you captive, disqualify you, condemn you, most of all yourselves. No one will make you feel inferior in the gospel unless that seed is already in you. No one will disqualify you unless that seed is already in you. In a way, Paul is saying to us, the the worst fear that you have, which is that you are not enough, is actually true. 
Now focus on the one who is enough, what he has done for you, and then determine your response. At some point in your ministry, in your church, in your counseling practice on the mission field, you're going to meet some great saint of faith who has something like a fifth grade education. And it's going to amaze you, their grasp of the love of Christ. And it's going to happen to humble you and your master's level education so much that you will realize that nothing you did in seminary added to the gospel. It was only a response. Listen, you have Christ. What more do you need? There are good things to add to the effectiveness of ministry, good things to learn, good things to do, but they are only responses. The gospel doesn't need to be upgraded every spring. It cannot be worn out like a car or a sweater. It will never become obsolete like a three-year-old iPhone. There is no faith 2.0. There is the cross. There is the Christ. There is the Father's love for you, welcoming you home, not even letting you say the word servant because you're already his child. We will never be enough because he already is. And that is the only one more thing that we will ever need to know. Will you pray with me? God, at the start of a new semester, we need to hear again that you are enough. We need to hear your love for us spoken loudly. Lord, if there's anything that we've been doing to try to earn our way to your good graces, to try to be servants so that our work earns us a place, will you crush it this morning? And will you bring a grace that overwhelms a love that is all-sufficient. And help us, Lord, in all we do only to respond. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.